The text for us today is Luke 13, the first nine verses. Now there were some present at that time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. Jesus answered, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. Or those 18 who died when the tower in Siloam fell on them, do you think they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. Then he told this parable. A man had a fig tree growing in his vineyard, and he went to look for fruit on it, but did not find any. So he said to the man who took care of the vineyard, for three years now I've been coming to look for fruit on this fig tree and haven't found any. Cut it down. Why should it use up the soil? Sir, the man replied, leave it alone for one more year, and I'll dig around it and fertilize it. If it bears fruit next year, fine. If not, then cut it down. This is the gospel of the Lord. Why do bad things happen? It's a question that we've all asked, whether about something big like a terrorist attack or a natural disaster or something personal like a lost job or a lost loved one. We've all asked the question, why do bad things happen? And we're not the only ones. Out there in the world, people are asking the exact same question, and in some sense, they're expecting a more nuanced and thoughtful answer from people like us. Why do bad things happen, Christian? You have a God who is all-powerful, all-knowing, and all-good, and yet bad things happen. Could it be that your God is not all-powerful? He can't do anything about it? Is it possible that your God is not all-good? He likes bad things to happen sometimes? Or that your God is not all-loving? He doesn't really care about you or doesn't care about everybody? Why do bad things happen, Christian? That's the question that Jesus was asked in the text that we just read. When some people came to him and gave him a scenario of bad things happening, they expected him to give them an answer. The problem was that Jesus didn't give them the answer they were expecting. I think as these people brought this question to Jesus, they were hoping that Jesus would give some maybe philosophical answer explaining the nuances of the person of God and how the all-powerful, all-knowing, all-good God could let bad things happen. But that's not the answer they received. They didn't get an answer to the question, why do bad things happen? Instead, they got an answer to this question, what do you do when bad things happen? Now, if you were coming here today and you saw the first slide and you thought to yourself, ah, finally, I'm going to get an answer to my question about why bad things happen. I'm going to disappoint you a little bit, but then I'm going to make up for it. We're not going to talk about why bad things happen today. We're going to talk about this question because this is the question that Jesus actually answers and what Jesus wants us to think about today. But you are in luck. In 2020, I preached a sermon series called Questioning Christianity, and in that series, I preached a sermon called If God is Good, Why Is There So Much Evil? If you want to go back into our archives, you can watch that sermon or listen to it on our podcast, and you can get an answer to the philosophical question that you might want to ask. But for today, we're asking this question, what do you do when bad things happen? So we're going to break the teaching into two parts. You can see them in your notes sheets if you grabbed a notes sheet on the way in. No shame in getting up and grabbing one right now, too, if you want to. But we're going to ask, um, what do you do, and then how do you do it? When bad things happen, what do you do, and then how do you do it? The text starts like this. Now there were some present at that time 
who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. Why did bad things happen? That was the question, right? Why did this bad thing happen to these Galileans? These Galileans were making their sacrifices, worshiping God, and then Pilate, yes, that Pilate, Pontius Pilate, the one who would eventually condemn Jesus to die, sends in his troops and murders these Galileans in cold blood while they are worshiping. I mean, just to put that in context, that's like we're gathered here for the Lord's Supper and someone walks in and starts shooting. It's a terrible thing. Why do bad things happen is the question. And then I think there's a question behind the question. Like, I think there are layers to this question that we maybe don't originally see as we read it. The first one is an ideological layer. See, as the, the people ask Jesus this question, they specifically choose this instance of the Galileans whose, Pilate, whose blood Pilate mixed with their sacrifices. But that's not the only bad thing that's happened or happened even at that time. They could have picked any number of bad events to ask this question, but they specifically picked this one, and I think there's a reason why. The Galileans were seen as something of less than by the people of the city of Jerusalem. They were the up north, backwoods, a little bit quirky people. Now, they were still Israelites, they were part of the nation, but they were different, and so people looked down on them. They weren't Samaritans, they weren't outside, half-breeds of sorts, but they still weren't the same. And so when they asked this question about the Galileans, I wonder if there wasn't a little bit of, I mean, they kind of had it coming, though. Right, Jesus? The Galileans had a reputation for offering sacrifices that weren't authorized. They would offer their sacrifices in Galilee, not at the temple where Jesus, where God had prescribed that they would worship. And so there was a little bit of, they sort of had it coming, right, Jesus? They've been doing this, and, and that's why bad things happened, right? Uh, maybe to make this more real for us, isn't this kind of the way that Canadians and Americans relate to each other? Like, we look to the other side of the border and we think to ourselves, we're a little bit better than those guys. Of course, that's a broad brushstroke. Not everyone feels that way. But isn't it the case that sometimes we think of ourselves with something of a superiority complex? And when bad things happen to people on the other side of the border, we say, well, they kind of had it coming. Haven't you been in a conversation where maybe some gun violence breaks out in the United States and one of the first things that many Canadians do is talk about gun control? And you can have your opinions about guns, but... Isn't it the case that we're doing exactly the same thing? We're saying, well, if they hadn't been so bad, bad things wouldn't have happened. By the way, they do that to us as well. They'll say something about, like, our economy is terrible because of socialism, and, and you could do this with any culture across any border. This is just how people work. This is the normal way that human beings operate. It's called karma. That bad things happen to bad people, and good things happen to good people. And Jesus, don't you see these Galileans? They were doing bad things, and that's why bad things happened to them, Right? I think there's a second layer, though, to this, and that is a human layer to this question. You can kind of see it in the way that Jesus answers the question. He'll later say, do you think these Galileans were, were so much more sinful than anyone else? I tell you, no, you need to repent as well. See, when they brought this question to Jesus, there was no sense of remorse or sadness over the death of these people. It was mostly a philosophical question. Like, let's analyze this situation, Jesus, and Jesus will have none of it. He says, we're not going to philosophize about the death of human beings. We're going to be honest about the pain that is being experienced by those people and their families. You think this is something to discuss? You think this is something to, to sip water around the water cooler about and, and chat about? No, this is the death of human beings. And yet, how quickly we do the same thing. 
We talk about death tolls in a war zone or death tolls because of a sickness. And we use them to analyze things like public policy or ideology or political machinations. And it's not that those things are wrong, but shouldn't our first movement be to say, Lord, have mercy. Human beings are dying. Human beings made in the image of God are dying, and we seem to think it's, well, just the way it goes. Just a heartbreak at the thought of of people losing their lives. Maybe to press this on you a little bit more. Some of you have loved ones who you know do not believe in Jesus. And as you think about the fact that they don't believe in Jesus, it breaks your heart. And it should. Those are human beings that Jesus died for, that God loves, and you obviously love too. Do we feel that way about everyone? Like, they may not be your loved ones, but they're somebody's loved ones, most importantly, God's loved ones. And when they are separate from God, do we say, well, that's just their choice, or that's just the way they are, or does our heart break for the fact that human beings made in the image of God with infinite value imbued to, him by God, imbued to them by God are not going to be saved? Or maybe, just, maybe as we think of the suffering in the world, do we, do we see ourselves as ones who can actually help that or even want to help that suffering? Or do we kind of say, I'd rather keep that uh, out of my, my purview? Like that's somebody else's problem to deal with. I would rather just turn on my Netflix and, and not have to think about it for a while. I think maybe there's a personal element to it too, isn't there? Like we ask this question because we want to keep the idea at distance. We don't want to actually have to feel what suffering is like. We want to deal with it in our minds. And isn't that the temptation of modern living? To find comfort at all turns rather than to actually deal with the reality of human life. Jesus' response to them is, do you think that those Galileans were worse sinners? Do you think this is because of karma? I tell you no. This is, this is real people who, who really died, and I'm telling you that you're just like them, and you too are going to die, and you might not die in a terrible way like those guys did because of Pilate's troops, but you are going to die. And so if you don't repent, if you don't realize what the world is like, you will perish. If you bury your head in the sand that is the modern world, you will not be ready for that moment when life ends, whether surprisingly or expectedly. This is, by the way, what Jesus said in just the last chapter. Remember, he said to the people he was talking to about the end, he said, hypocrites, you know how to look at the sun, the weather, and try to figure it out. You know how to do that, but you don't look at the world around you and realize what's happening. People are dying. You're dying. And that's not okay. And so repent. Like the world is messed up. And there's only one way out. It's not human intervention. That hasn't worked for approximately a couple millennia. Only divine intervention can step in and save us from the mess that we are in and the mess that we constantly create for ourselves in large ways and small ways. I tell you, if you do not repent, you too will perish. And then Jesus doubles down. After the example of the Galileans, he brings up this event of a tower falling on 18 people in Siloam. And I think there's two reasons that he brings this up. First, it's in Jerusalem. So he says, it's not just about Galilee. It's about you too, Jerusalem. Bad things happen here. And that it's not something that was brought about by another human being, right? 
Pontius Pilate sent in his troops and killed those Galileans. A tower falling, that's, well, we might call it an accident, right? Bad things happen, not always because someone does them, just because the world is messed up and we have to come to terms with that, and that means to repent. When you see evil in the world, repent. Acknowledge that you are broken. Acknowledge that you are dying. Acknowledge that it is your fault in part that the world is the way that it is. And turn to Jesus. That's what repentance is. We probably have to talk about this because we're using this word a lot today, repentance. Uh, Repentance, I think people have different ideas of what it means, so let's look at a biblical definition of it. Repentance is just this. It is to sorrow over your sin, to say, what I have done is not good. It is contrary to God's law, and I do not like it, and I wish I didn't. Lord, have mercy on me. And then to trust that Jesus will forgive you and set you on the right path. That's all repentance is. Repentance is not work it off, make up for it. It's just simply to say, I have failed. Lord, save me. I'm going to try better tomorrow. And I will probably fail, and then I will say, Lord, save me, and then I will try again better tomorrow. And I will probably fail, and the cycle continues on. This is repentance, the daily walk of the Christian, realizing that I am evil, but God is good, and yet God has saved me through Jesus. So what, what to do when bad things happen? Repent. Which has been a pretty hard message up to this point, right? Like, I've been talking a lot about some pretty heavy stuff, and there's a reason that there's a silence in the room when my voice stops. But there's good news. Right? Because Jesus doesn't just say, make sure you repent, see you later, I'll check back in with you at the end of your life. No, he tells a beautiful parable that helps us understand how repentance happens. Let me read it again for us. He says, A man had a fig tree growing in his vineyard, and he went to look for fruit on it, but he didn't find any. And so he said to the man who took care of the vineyard, For three years I've been coming to look for fruit on this fig tree and haven't found any. Cut it down. Why should it use up the soil? Sir, the man replied, Leave it alone for one more year, and I'll dig around it and fertilize it. If it bears fruit next year, fine. If not, then cut it down. So there's three characters in this parable, and we have to define who they are. First of all, the fig trees are people. Uh, For the Jewish audience who was listening to Jesus tell this parable, they would have quickly identified themselves with fig trees. It's kind of like if somebody told a parable right now and said that they were maple trees, like we would kind of all identify with that, right? That's who we are in some organic sense. Uh, Fig trees were the picture of Israelites, and so fig trees were the picture of the people. The landowner, the one who comes and says we should cut down this tree, is God the Father, the one who expects perfection from his people. He expects fruit to be produced by those he has created. And he says that if you don't do this, then you are cut off from me. He literally uses that language. You are separated from me, except for the work of the gardener. The one who says, sir, leave it alone for another year. And that gardener is Jesus. The Bible tells us that Jesus advocates for us before the throne of God. He is the one who goes on our behalf before God the Father and says, you cannot punish them for their sins. I have died for their sins. It would be unjust of you, God, to punish them now since their punishment has already been paid. So let's play out the parable. The man says about the vineyard, for three years I've been coming to look for fruit on this fig tree and I haven't found any. Cut it down. Why should it use up the soil? God the Father looks at every person and says, look, they're not producing fruit the way that they should. Even if you think to yourself, well, I haven't murdered a whole bunch of people while they're worshiping like Pilate Pilate did, you are living a life that is less than God's standards. God's standard is absolute perfection in every single aspect, that you would never do anything contrary to his law and that you would live out every command of his law absolutely perfectly, and every one of us is failing at this. 
It's not producing, you're not producing the fruit that God expects. And so he says, frankly, you're a drain on the resources of the world. But all you're doing is adding corruption. You're oozing sinfulness out on everything. Why should we keep this plant around? But then the gardener, who represents Jesus, says, sir, leave it alone for one more year, and I'll dig around it and fertilize it. Now, I think this statement of the man deserves a good amount of time to break down exactly what he says here. First of all, look at this phrase, leave it alone, leave it alone. That's a fine translation of the word there, but when you see it in English and not in the original Greek, you miss the richness of the word that is there in Greek. The word there in Greek is aphiemi, aphes, literally. Uh, Aphiemi is a word that is very commonly translated throughout the Bible, forgive. When Jesus hangs from the cross and says, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing, he says, Father, aphiemi them. And isn't that exactly what he just said in this text? Right? Sir, forgive this plant. Don't just leave it alone. Don't just let it. But forgive it. And he says the same to you. You who are not producing fruit. Jesus pleads to the Father, let them alone. Forgive them for the sins that they have committed. Don't cut them off yet. Don't punish them for their sins. For you, Christian, this is beautiful comfort. The one who has called you by name in your baptism continues to stand before the throne of God and says, Father, forgive them. For even though I have called them by name, they still live with their sinful flesh. Do not cut them off. Let them be. But maybe even farther, for those of you who are not Christians or maybe considering Christianity or unsure if you're a Christian, I want you to see how much God loves you. That Jesus stands before the throne of God on behalf of those who won't even say they believe in him. And they, he says to the Father, Father, be patient with them. Let me work on them. I love them too much. Even though they don't acknowledge me yet, even though they aren't producing fruit, please forgive them and let me work on them. And so if that's you, if you're, you're considering Christianity or you're unsure or you're not a Christian, like, no, this is what God thinks of you. He's not good riddance to hell with you. No, he says, please give me time to give them my word, to work on their soil so that they can produce fruit. He then says later, if this tree bears fruit next year, um, it's easy as you read the text to put all this into the yearly framework that it seems that they're speaking of, right? Three years that it's not producing fruit, leave it alone for one year, and then next year if it doesn't produce fruit. The problem is that the word next year is not there. Literally, it's istomelo, which means until something happens. Um, there's no time limit on this in Greek. The idea is this is just until the necessary things have happened, which means God's not got a time limit on you either. Like, yes, there's going to be a day when you breathe your last, but it's not that God is going to cut you off before then. It is that you will cut yourself off. You will say, I do not want God. I do not want to live forever. I do not want the forgiveness of sins. I want to live connected to this sinful, corrupt world that is causing evil. I don't want to be free from it, and I don't want to bring anybody with me. In that case, yes, cut it down. You will go to be in your sin forever. But Jesus is patient with you. He says, as long as it takes, I will work on you. As long as it takes, I will feed you. As long as it takes, I will send people to tell you about my love. Because I care that much for you. Jesus pleads for God's mercy for us. Which is so good to hear. After he has said, repent. (laughs) Right? This isn't our effort where we have to come to God and make sure that we're repenting in the right way. No, Jesus says, I am there speaking on your behalf. 
Jesus says it differently. He will later in Luke's gospel when he talks about the the parable of the 99 sheep and the one. And even know this parable. The one sheep who wanders off and the shepherd goes and tracks down that sheep, grabs that sheep, puts it over his shoulders and carries it back to the flock. And Jesus says, this is what happens in repentance. Not that the sheep got wise, thought to itself, hey, you know, it was really bad when I was, or that I'm away from the flock. I should go back to the flock. No, the sheep is just doing its thing. It's going, it doesn't care. And the shepherd tracks it down and God says, that's repentance. Jesus tracks you down, that's repentance. Jesus does it for you, that's repentance. This is not about you. It's about Jesus for you. And Jesus continues that when he talks about how he's going to dig around this fig tree and fertilize it. Now, of course, this is just organic language. This is how you care for a plant. But I think there's something specific that Jesus is trying to communicate through these things. First of all, let's talk about digging around a plant. If you have a plant that's not producing fruit, you dig around it, right? You might take a hoe to the ground and and pull up some of the the compacted dirt and make sure that there's water getting down to the roots. It's a fine thing to do. But what do you often do as you do that? You upset the plant. Whether you upset the plant by taking some of the dirt that it has dug its roots into and pulling that dirt away, or even coming down hard enough with the hoe that you start to cut some of the roots, yes, this is good for the plant, but it is not pleasant for the plant. And Jesus says that is what he does to us. He does things to us that may not seem pleasant at the time, but they are trying to loosen us from the things that we have compacted ourselves into as people in this world. He's trying to cut off what we go to to find peace and security and comfort in the world. You ever had an experience like this? Maybe you called it a bad thing that happened? Where you were cut off from something that you continually went back to to find who you were? to find your comfort in life, to find your peace in your life, and suddenly it was gone? That was Jesus bringing the hoe down through the roots of your life. Is there a way of your life that you were living that suddenly, for some reason, was impossible to live anymore? Is that not Jesus bringing the hoe down into the compacted dirt of your life and pulling it away so you have to think and live differently? People don't repent just out of the blue. They repent because Jesus digs around them. He makes their life uncomfortable. And so I'm asking you, I think every one of us could think back to a time in our past or maybe even right now where it has been super uncomfortable to live in this world. That was Jesus digging around your roots to lead you to repentance, to reality again, that this world is messed up, but he has made a way out of it. And then he says, that he's going to fertilize it. Yep, he means that. Not some synthetic fertilizer. No, literally the word in the Bible is exactly what you think it is. We'll say feces for today. He puts stuff that you know is good for plants, right? It's a natural fertilizer, but it smells bad. Sometimes what Jesus does is he puts things into our life that are unpleasant, that are constant reminders of the uncomfortability of life and yet are doing something very good for us as they smell bad. It's a little bit different than digging around the plant. Once you've dug around it and you've opened it up, you put this fertilizer on the roots, you put these things on the roots that continue to not be pleasant and yet they are doing something really good. I wonder if when Jesus says this, he means spiritual discipline. He means putting something uncomfortable on your life in order to help you grow. 
I mean, every one of us knows that this is just how you grow in general, from lifting weights in the gym to putting on that weird facial mask that you put on that makes you look like a freak, but it's really good for your skin, apparently. I've never done it. You make yourself uncomfortable. You make yourself unpleasant for a time because you know that the growth is coming. How antithetical it is, though, to modern life, right? Where we seek comfort at every turn, how to make life easier, how to make life more efficient, how to not have to deal with stuff. God says growth happens through digging around the roots and fertilizer being put on the roots. A couple weeks ago, I talked about trying versus training. And I want to keep pressing this on you because I think it's worth considering. As you look at your Christian life and you think about growth, is your growth happening through trying? I'm going to go back to my life and try a little harder to do that thing the pastor said? Or am I going to train? Am I going to put structures into my life that challenge me, that lead me to this growth. It might not happen overnight. It might not happen over the next two years. But it will eventually grow me into that plant that produces good fruit. Growth comes through spiritual discipline. This is what the scripture says time and time again. Now, you don't need to grow to be a good Christian. You are saved because Christ saves you. This is the whole point of the text. And if you walk away from this thinking, I need to be better in order that Jesus would love me, no, you've missed it. But... As you see what Christ has wanted you to be and what he died to make you into, don't you want to? Don't you want to lean into a life that is truly life where you live for the sake of your neighbor? To bless them with every good thing, to help them grow in this same faith that you enjoy? Don't you want to? Could it look like putting some limits on things in your life that you do without thinking about it? Limits on your time, limits on your work, limits on your money, Could it be investing in things that don't always produce really good returns right away, but produce fruit in the long term? It could look like any number of things in your life, but consider how disciplining yourself could be like putting fertilizer on the roots of your life. So let's finish with this. When bad things happen, rather than philosophizing about those things, let it lead us to the repentance that God wants. A recognition of how bad the world is and how we contribute to it daily. And then as we repent, let's remember that Jesus is the one doing the work. Through those bad things, often setting us free from the things that entangle us in this world so that we can worship him, so that we can grow into the plants that he wants us to be, to bless others with the fruit that comes. Let's ask God to make that happen. Lord Jesus, when bad things happen, we want to pity ourselves, we want to run, we want to find comfort, but help us to lean into those things as your work on us toward repentance and renewal. And we ask that through those challenging times, those things that just stink, that you would set us free and that you would grow us to be a blessing to our family, to our friends, to our neighbors, to the people in this room, to the glory of your name. Amen.